Amen. And please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do ask you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 18. You can also find uh, our passage for this morning on the insert inside of your bulletin along with a brief outline of today's message. Genesis chapter 18 is broken up into two very distinct sections, uh, 1 through 15 and then 16 to 33. Last week, um, if you were here with us, you'll remember we talked about the first 15 verses. That half of this chapter talked about God, um, in particular God interacting with and dealing with Abraham and Sarah. Um, The Lord visited with them to reveal his promises, to assure them of his promises. It revealed some of the worry, the fear, the doubt lingering in Sarah's mind and Sarah's heart. But throughout this exchange, really, um, God's sovereignty was put on display. Abraham and Sarah have reached the age where biologically they cannot produce children, and yet the Lord said, one year's time from now I will visit you and you will be with a child his name shall be Isaac. And as we look at the second section of this chapter, as we look at our passage for today, um, starting in verse 16, this section follows that in judgment. It's still a section about the sovereignty of God. It is still about God fulfilling His promises. It is still about God doing what He says He's going to do. And yet it does shift in some ways where we look to Abraham and Sarah and we see mercy and grace poured out. Here we see judgment and justice. However, it would be wrong of us to think that even as we make this shift, that there is no mercy, patience, and kindness. In fact, we will see this morning that um, that has been the case. That being said, I do invite you to look with me. Please follow along as I read for us this morning the Word of God. I'd like to start in verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, 
If I find 50 at Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sakes. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please bow with me as we go to the Lord now and ask him to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we have before us a picture of your divine justice. We have before us a picture of your mercy. We have before us a picture of your patience. We have before us a picture of your holiness. And we confess, O oh Lord, sometimes these things are too much for us. They are difficult for us to understand or they are difficult for us to accept. But I pray, O oh Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see this day that we might see the truth of your word. O oh Lord, would you give us ears to hear that we might listen to the truth that comes from your word. Would you soften our hearts that we might see your glory and your majesty found within these passages. I pray that you would be with each one here this day. Be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. I will admit, when looking at this chapter as a whole, it could be, and it certainly was for me at, at, at first, difficult to relate to the first 15 verses. We have Abraham at his tent, three visitors come up, he doesn't know who they are, come to find out it's the Lord himself and two of his angels. But he goes out of his way to care for them, to love them, to minister to them. It's revealed that it's the Lord. One of the reasons of this visit is to um, inform Sarah that this promise will take place, that a son will be born even despite their age. That, that passage, while, while very significant, and we talked about the importance of hospitality, we talked about the importance of uh, not letting bitterness or worry or anxiety creep into our lives, that one can be hard to grasp. However, as we continue in chapter 18, I would dare say that's not the case for this one. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says of this section of Scripture we find ourselves at the second half of this chapter, and immediately the situation is as relevant as the morning's newspaper. It concerns a wicked city, a pending judgment, and the role of the godly in interceding for those who are about to be destroyed. I really, and I, I truly wish 
that considering this scene was hard. I wish that I had trouble contemplating a city so wicked that it would garner the divine judgment of God. I, I wish that I lived in a time and in, in a world in which this sounds fanciful, but I don't. I don't. Dr. Boyce is correct in stating that the state of affairs in these cities are much like the affairs that we find our world in today. The only difference is we would go online and not read a newspaper, but the truth still stands. But because of this, because of the truth of this passage, because of the relevance of it, I am convinced that we must look closely here. And in particular, we must look closely to Abraham. We must look at his response. We must look at where he fits in this scene. Because by doing so, we learn how we are to respond when the world strays from God. My goal this morning is to show us three vital lessons that we can learn from our passage. I want us to learn and to see how the Lord himself is the one that teaches righteousness. In a climate of moral depravity, we need this. We need righteousness now more than ever. Secondly, I want us to learn or to see that the Lord's judgment will be and is just. When the Lord acts, particularly when he acts against the wicked, he does so in justice. This should bring us encouragement and comfort. And then thirdly, the third lesson I want us to learn this morning is that the Lord responds to the prayers of the righteous. Abraham does serve a vital role in this passage And in seeing this role that he serves, he teaches us about prayer, and he teaches us about our God that we serve. And so this morning, I want us to look at each of these, beginning with the Lord teaching righteousness to his people. And we think about everything that's taken place in the life of Abraham to this point. He's been promised a son through his wife, Sarah. He's been promised that Ishmael, his son through his second wife, Hagar, would be blessed, though not the child of covenant blessing. Abraham has been given circumcision and told that this will set my people apart. This will mark them as mine. And we know Abraham believed these things. Why? What does he do? He goes and he has everyone circumcised. After this covenant promise, he includes himself, he includes Ishmael, he includes all of his servants because he trusted God. He trusted that God could do and that God would do exactly what he promised. And we could keep zooming back. We could go back to the battle of the armies and how Abraham rescued Lot. We could go back further and see how God saved him from a pretty... um, ignorant decision in Egypt. We could go back further on how God called him to leave his family, to leave his home, to leave his possessions, and to go to a place that would be spoken to him or of, of, for, in front of him later. We could look at the life of Abraham and we can come to the conclusion that the Lord has stood on his side. The Lord has been shaping him and molding him and preparing him to be what his name claims him to be, the father of nations.
And we need to understand this morning, and it, it, it's true of Abraham's life, and it's certainly true of ours. Sometimes the way God molds us, sometimes the, God, the way God brings us to that place where he needs us to be, it's painful. Sometimes you have to go through Egypt to understand you don't have to sell your wife off as a sister to get out of trouble. Sometimes you have to understand that when your possessions and your nephew's possessions get so great, you can leave in peace. You can pick one direction and he can pick the other. Sometimes you have to go and battle five armies just to get your nephew back with a few from your house. We need to know today that there are often cases, circumstances, events in our lives that we may not like them, we may not pick them, we may not ask for them. And yet these are the things that God uses. These are the things that He shapes us into that mold, that mold of righteousness that He's called us to be. And we know that this is the case, particularly for the life of Abraham, because we get this internal dialogue here. We get this conversation between uh, the Lord and the angels. The Lord gets into a debate with the angels, asking, do we let him know? Do we tell him what is about to take place? Do we reveal the purpose of this visit? And then ultimately, the answer is yes. And it's yes for two main reasons. And again, as we think about these two reasons, we, we understand how God molds us into righteousness. First, I have selected Abraham. I have chosen him to become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. One commentator states that one of the main reasons God revealed this plan to Abraham is because Abraham was going to be a blessing to the nations. Because of this, he should know why one of those nations would be removed from this opportunity. God was about to wipe a group of people off of the face of the earth after he had told Abraham, through you and by you, the nations shall be blessed. God was working in him to understand God's will, to understand God's purposes, to understand God's plan, even when it looked like it didn't fit even when it looks like it's not going the way we would want it to. Let's put ourselves in Abraham's shoes. We, we might wonder, and maybe even you're here today and you wonder, how can a just God enact such a level of righteous anger? How can a just God do such a thing? And so, so that Abraham wouldn't wonder these things, so that Abraham wouldn't worry about God and his decision-making, we know that ultimately... His plan is revealed to him, and this grows him in righteousness. The second reason that God decides to reveal his plan, and again, another way that grows righteousness in him and in his family, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Abraham was called to be a righteous man before the Lord. Abraham was called to be a righteous man before the Lord so that his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and their grandchildren would know what righteousness looks like. 
so that they would know when they're told from their grandfather, they're sitting around the campfire and they're saying, tell us a story about God. And he says, well, let me tell you about this city called Sodom. And they go, wow, that's a, that's a big story, Grandpa. Are you sure we're ready for that? And then Abraham realizes he probably shouldn't tell it. But he goes ahead and he has to tell them. He's like, well, God was sovereign and just and righteous and holy. And these people were wicked and disobedient and unloving and unkind. And so God kept his word and brought judgment upon them. You see, God has been working in and will continue to work in the life of Abraham, not only for his own life, but for those that would come after. For those that generations from then would still be hearing of these stories and learning what righteousness looks like. You know, I love reading through the, the stories of Abraham for this main reason. And we've talked about this before in the sermon series and here we are, however many great-grandchildren later, still being told the stories. We are still hearing the blessings, and we are still heeding the warnings today. You and I, if you are here today in Christ, are descendants of Abraham and are fulfilling the very things that God promised he would do for him and through him. And righteousness is being worked in us as we speak because we're hearing the word of God. So see how important righteousness is. See how important holiness is. This is why God has been schooling Abraham. I love the, the, the uh, confession of faith, shorter catechism. Question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? And it answers, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Righteousness or righteous living is understanding, carrying out in obedience what God commands for you and for me. The scriptures teach us how to obey God. Even more important, the scriptures teach us why we are to obey God. And for Abraham, this would be the case of the stories of his life, of his successes and his failures. He's not Christ. He doesn't do it perfectly all the time. As he would have to tell his children about Egypt, he's also going to have to tell them about this problem of him wanting to sell off his wife. Not once, but twice. And even in that, God would be glorified. And while we understand that, and, and while this is absolutely the case, that the Lord works righteousness in His people, at the same time, we need to agree, we need to accept that the Lord is also a just God. He is a God that do, who does what is right. And we see that in our, our second section and this is where we get the um, decision. God wondered, he pondered, should I reveal this to Abraham? And then he does. And we have these words given to Abraham. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that's come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, in the Hebrew here, there's a, there's a little poetic thing going on. Um, in, in English, our words outcry and righteousness are almost identical in the Hebrew. Uh, there's this little play on words going on where these two are being contrasted by showing how similar they are. We, we miss that in, in our text, but commentators believe this is deliberate to show how opposite they are. The outcry against Sodom is not that it's righteous. 
The outcry is not that they're holy. The outcry is not, oh, that this nation is so following the word of God that you must see them and listen and respond and live like them. No, the outcry against them is unholy. In fact, the the text says very grave. When you think of Sodom and when you think of the sin taking place there and you think of the hearts of the people, you should get a sense of death. And all that comes along with that. The unholy, the unrighteous, the, the wickedness of death. But I want to be careful here. I, I, I want to be careful here. God is not rash. He does not act hastily. He does not act without evidence, much like we might in any given situation. We actually have several pieces of proof that the Lord considered and contemplated this well before he took action. We know this first off because the Lord is wanting to go down to the city. The Lord is wanting to see for himself if indeed the cries against them are true. Are they really as wicked as people claim they are? Is it as bad as it's being told to God through prayer. Now, really quick pause. I am not saying, and we want to be very careful here, that the Lord had no idea what's going on in Sodom. The text tells us the Lord wants to go down to see what's happening in this city. That's not because he didn't know. The reason we're given this language is twofold. One, we are humans, and sometimes we have a hard time understanding God. So, God in his mercy uses human words, human language to relate to us. And so God is saying, I want to go down like you would go down to investigate, to consider, to contemplate. God had already done that from eternity past. He didn't need to do it. But for Abraham's sake, he tells him this. And then, secondly, the reason that the Lord says he himself wants to go down is so we understand it isn't just a decision that day. It isn't just a, hmm, what am I going to do today? Let me destroy a city. Let me pick one. Ah, here's a good-looking one. Let's pick Sodom. No, the Lord knew what was happening there. The Lord knew what was taking place. The Lord had told Abraham, I've heard the cries against the city. I have heard about their sin. I will judge what has been done. And there's one more aspect, and, I, and I, to me this is the most powerful piece of evidence that the Lord is just in his action. As we know, he totally annihilates his city. We'll get to that in chapter 19. We know this because the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah most likely have been visited with or get, been gifted God's grace, God's mercy more than any other city in Canaan. And I can show it to you. Go back to chapter 14. Chapter 14, we get this civil dispute. All of these nations decide to attack these other nations. They decide to to have this kind of war dispute, what's going on. People aren't happy. Land is in debate, so they have this great fight. Lot gets captured up, caught up in it. Ketaleomar takes over. Abraham finds out about it. Abraham finds out about it, and he takes, I think it's like 300 from his household, and he goes and he rescues Lot from this 
warring group of people and who else is saved in that battle. It says very clearly, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Salvation at the hand of God for this people. Proof one. Two, go down to the second half of chapter 14. At chapter 14, the, the, the bottom half, you remember, we get this meeting. Abraham is there. This interesting character named Melchizedek is there. And, what does the text say? The king of Sodom is present in this meeting, post-battle victory. And if you remember, the king of Sodom is saying, look, Abraham, I'm going to give you all these possessions. Just um, let people know that, that you saved us and that it's, you're awesome and that you're related to us, so we'll sound awesome. Deep paraphrase here, but there was a sense of we want to be connected to you, and Abraham said, I won't take a thing because I'm not tied to you, I'm tied to God. And I, I don't want to be connected to you. This victory belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. And then Melchizedek says... Praise be to the Lord. Praise be to God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, who has delivered the enemies of Abraham into his hand. The king of Sodom heard that. The king, the highest in that city, heard that it was the Lord that saved his people. Not the king, but God, Yahweh, was the rescuer. Proof two. But there's more. If you were to flip forward, and, and we've um, uh, not too long ago been in the book of Second Peter, you may remember this fascinating text. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7. If God rescued righteous Lot, hold on to that word, we're going to have to have a deep conversation about that in the coming weeks. If God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he heard and saw. God saved them. God testified to his greatness before the king. And God put a preacher in the middle of the town whose heart was burdened and burning because of the sin around him. His life was a testimony to their sin. So let me ask you this. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, when God said, your sin is so great, judgment comes now, did he do it flippantly? Or do we have to admit the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah got more from God than most cities in the entire Bible? Rescue, a claim of God's sovereignty, and a preacher put before them to call them out on their sin. That's mercy. That's not hatred. That's not wicked. That's not flippant. That's patient. That's kindness. That's grace. To the point that when we get to chapter 19 and we, we feel the weight of this divine judgment and we're like, God, that's intense. Yes, it is. But over and over and over again, they've been called to repent. And here's the thing. That's not all of it. That's not all of it. 
we see in this final section, the, the largest section of this text, that potential rescue for them comes from the most unlikely of places, from Abraham himself. The Lord responds to the prayers of the righteous. We finally get to, to verse 22, and, and in 22 to 33, it's this long prayer, and it should be felt as a prayer. He's speaking to God. He's making petitions on behalf of, um, of others. So it's, it, even though he's in God's presence, he's praying. And what does he ask? Oh, Lord, would you really destroy righteousness? Would you destroy righteous people? In your justice, in your wrath, in your holiness, would you take out someone who is living for you? Let me be bold, O oh God, please. Let me stand before you and ask this. I, I, I beg you, God, if there's 50, would you save them? Would you save the city? God says, oh, well, of course, Abraham. I would. And then we get this, this um, stair step of, of numbers. God, let me, let me try again. Please, Lord, please just be and you feel his humility, how about if there's five less? If there's 45, and God's like, oh, that's fine, Abraham. I'll do it for 45. And then 40, and then 30, and then 20, and then 10. And every time the Lord says, well, of course, Abraham, I wouldn't do it for 40. I wouldn't do it for 30. I wouldn't do it for 20. I wouldn't do it for 10. Now, again, what we will find out in chapter 19 is there was one But do you feel the, the awesome weight here? Why should Abraham pray for this city? Why should Abraham pray that the Lord withhold his hand? Because he's the very thing we talked about in our first point. He's a man of righteousness. He's a man who understands who God is. He understands his character. He understands what the Lord wants. And he understands the Lord's heart at least at this moment. Abraham understands fully that God is a God of mercy. Why? Why can this man pray this way? Well, let me ask you this. Couldn't we title, if we, if we wrote the biography of the life of Abraham, couldn't we title it, God redeems, saves, and blesses a man who didn't deserve it? You could probably think of something more clever, but the point's made, right? Couldn't you title the, the biography of Abraham's life, God redeems, saves, and calls an undesirable person? And so what is Abraham now praying? God, would you redeem, call, and save undesirable people? The Lord is working in the life and in the heart of Abraham so much so that Abraham's prayer reflects what God does. It reflects the character of God. It reflects his desires, his wishes, his will. And isn't that what we want from the Lord? Isn't that what we want from each one of us and from our children and from our grandchildren? That they would so know God that when they pray, it sounds like God is praying. That when they ask for something in God's name, it's the very thing God would ask for. It's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. It's why we preface the reason we pray the Lord's Prayer. We do it as Jesus Christ taught us saying. Because Jesus said, pray like this, so we're going to pray like that. 
And we're going to ask for the things that the Lord told us to ask for. Which, by the way, is what? Provision and mercy and forgiveness and blessing and holiness. You see, Abraham is merely modeling his father. And again, what did God say? Why did he pick Abraham? What was the purpose? Because he's going to teach this to the next generation and to the next and to the next and to the next. His life, his ministry will set a people apart for generations to come. And and I, I said it a moment ago, to that end, he's still doing it. Because we just heard it. We here are feeling the effects of this man's heart. And let me just make one, uh, one very important point of application in line of this. Every single one of us, all of us here today, those of us that are listening online, you are called to righteousness. Complete and total and perfect righteousness and holiness before the Lord. You are called to know God and to obey God perfectly. And the only way you can do that is if God declares it so. The only way Abraham could pray for for a wicked city, a vile city, was because he himself had been forgiven by the Father. What did God say? I chose him. He is mine. Contrast that with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. On more than one occasion, they rejected the truth about God. And rather than living in submission to the word of God, they decided to chase greater and greater and greater sin. You have before you today the same path. Will you trust in God, the God of Abraham? Will you submit to him and his mercy and his kindness, and his forgiveness? Or will you chase your own desires, your own heart, your own wickedness, your own goals, and end up like the city of Sodom? And here's the beauty of it. If you are here today and you are trusting in God, you you are resting in him, you you, you hear this and you receive it and you accept it, for you, the, the blessing is this, you get to live for him. And how do you do it? It's the same way. Here, this is the beauty of the gospel. How do you get out of unrighteousness? How do you get out of this situation? How do you get from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to living a life of Abraham? You trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. If you are here today and you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, how do you live a holy life before God? By trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. The answer is the same no matter which question you're asking. How do I live for God? Trust in Christ. How do I get forgiveness for my sin? I trust in Christ. How do I live righteously before before my God and teach his truth to not only my children but my children's children? You trust in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. This will be the source of strength, the source of hope, and the source of encouragement no matter where you are today. But please, please, please hear me And I I say this with all soberness. It's the only option. It is the only choice. Because we could look at Sodom. 
we could keep going. We could look at Babylon. We could look at we could go all throughout the scriptures. We could pick a pick a text, pick a people, pick a city, pick a nation. And one of two things happen. They repent, they trust in the Lord, and they find salvation, or they are sit they sit in judgment. Every time. There is no difference. That is what's before us this day, and I hope and pray that in this and through this, you as well have hope. Hope that can only come from trusting in the just judge. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I do pray that this passage would weigh heavy on our hearts. I I pray that we would soberly contemplate the fact that you are just, and because you are just, you will bring about justice. And what true justice looks like is punishment for our sin. But Lord, there is forgiveness. There is hope. There is redemption if we but cling to Jesus Christ. Lord, Abraham wasn't righteous because he did the right things or said the right things. Abraham was righteous because you said he was righteous. May that be said of us this day. It's not by who we are. It's not by what we have done. It's by knowing whose we are. And I pray that each and every one of us here this day are clinging to you. Lord, I thank you for your word, the truth found in it. May we heed its warnings and seek to live as you have called us to live. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.